0: Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Well, it's wonderful to be with you all this evening and what an incredible privilege to be worshipping in this space. Um, I just want to start by thanking Carl and Nikki for having us. We've really loved getting to know you and I think um, it's been such an encouragement for Frog and I to um, see leaders like you pioneering and pushing forward um, in a place like this. And Glory to God. I mean, it's overwhelming to see what the Lord has done already in this place, but it's only the beginning. Um, We can sense that the energy of the movement beginning to stir. So praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open them at John's Gospel. And um, as we were praying for you and um, just praying for this evening, really, um, and asking the Lord, what. What is it that you want to say to us tonight? What is it that you want to do among us tonight? I sense uh, him laying on my heart um, some of the questions that Jesus asks people in John's Gospel. We're going to look at four of them tonight. He asks them to um, individual, specific, real, historical people. And John records that. But he also asks us these questions tonight. So, um, why don't you open the, your Bibles at John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to be looking from um, verse 29. So, this is what we read The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. So, that's John the Baptist. And he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning round, Jesus saw them following and he asked, and here's the question, he asked, what do you want? What do you want? The story is told of a woman um, walking along a beach and she stumbles across something and it's a genie's lamp. She picks it up, rubs it, and a genie pops out. Obviously a true story. The amazed woman says, am I going to get my three wishes? The genie says, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, low wages in the third world and fierce global competition, I can only grant you one wish, what's it going to be? The woman didn't hesitate for a moment. She said, I want peace in the Middle East. See this map? I want these countries to stop fighting each other. The genie looked at the map and said, Listen, lady, those countries have been at war for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. I don't think it can be done. Make another wish. The woman thought for a moment and said, Well, you know, I've never been able to find quite the perfect man. One that's considerate and fun, likes to cook and helps with the cleaning, is attractive and gets on on with my mother, doesn't watch sports all the time, and is faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect mate. The genie let out a long sigh and said, give me back that map, let me have another look at it. (laughs) Well, here in the Gospel of John, we don't have a fictitious genie of a kind of silly story asking what wishes would you would be your kind of top three wishes we have Jesus John the writer of the gospel has already introduced us to Jesus if you know the prologue of John's gospel you'll know that Jesus has been described as the logos the word The information, if you like, through whom the cosmos, the universe, came into existence. Nothing that has been created came into existence without him. He is the first mover, the unmoved first cause of everything. He's God. He's the eternal one to whom all things ultimately come back the one who is described in this amazing way in the prologue of John's gospel as the creator of the world, is then also described as the one who takes flesh and enters into the space-time continuum that he has created and comes and dwells among us. And then we hear John the Baptist, this amazing prophet, pointing to him and saying, he's not just the logos through whom everything came into existence, He's just not just the Word, the author of DNA. He's not just the Creator. He's also the Lamb of God, the one who is going to carry away the sins of the world. The build-up to this person, Jesus, in this Gospel of John could not be more intense. We're familiar with it, so you know we just read it. Yes, I've heard it at carol services, I know it. But the build-up is intentionally Um, Intense, And and we're on the edge of our seats as we're introduced to the one who who is the Logos, the one who is the Lamb. And now, for the first time at all in John's Gospel, that one who has been longed for, that would come and dwell among us, is about to speak. And these are the first words Jesus says in John's Gospel. What do you want? Wow. Now, it's interesting, the disciples here... Their reaction is quite funny. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? (laughs) The one through whom the cosmos has come into existence, the author of all information, DNA. The one who is going to be able to take away, carry away the sins of the world has asked you, what do you want and their answer is, "What's your accommodation like? What's it like where you live?" Jesus, amazing! It's meant to make us laugh that it's Jesus, amazingly, he says. And this is the opener to the rest of the gospel. He says, "Come, and you will see. Come, and you will see. The Son of God, on whom God's Spirit has come down like a dove." the Lamb of God, who is able to take away the sin of the world, says, come and be with me, and you will see. Being with Jesus, walking with Jesus, seeing Jesus, dwelling with Jesus, is the only way to find an answer to that question, what do you want? It's a question that philosophers have asked. It's a question that mystics have asked. It's a question that all of us as human beings are innately created to ask. a question of meaning, of purpose, of destiny, of identity. It's the deepest question of the human race. What is all of this about? Why do I have these longings? The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. He says... God has set eternity into the hearts of men, and Jesus is drawing that out in this question: What do you want? The one who is the Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the cross is very familiar to us. We um, we see it on necklaces, we see it in earrings, we see it on the top of buildings, we see it on tombs. But why? take a symbol of execution and build a culture around it. We would find it very strange if we were to meet somebody at a dinner party and notice that they had a necklace with a hangman's noose or an electric chair dangling around their neck. We would think it very odd if somebody chose to have a machine gun, a symbol of death, on their gravestone. But the cross isn't like any other symbol of execution. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is God come down to rescue us. And it's only as we see him as the Lamb of God that we're going to be able to even begin to formulate an answer to that question. What do you want? What is life about? What is your deepest passion? Why are you on this earth? What is your life for? Sigmund Freud once said, The great psychoanalyst, he once said, when you're pushed to your visceral limit, the real you comes out. When you're pushed to your visceral limit, the real you comes out. Now, when I'm pushed to my visceral limit, usually by my children, what comes out is not very nice. It might be anger or frustration. But what came out of Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross, And people were hurling insults at him and saying, why doesn't he save himself? He saved others. Maybe Elijah will come down and rescue him. What came out of Jesus when he was pushed to his visceral limit, struggling to take a breath, was love and compassion and the offer of salvation to the man hanging next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, the author of Mark's Gospel writes that a Roman centurion was standing, and Mark specifically says he was at the front, Mark chapter 15, read the the crucifixion account, this centurion, a man hardened by death, he knew how to execute people, he'd seen probably hundreds if not thousands of people executed and killed as a centurion, he stood at the front and he watched the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world, he watched Jesus push to his visceral limit on the cross, and what conclusion did he draw? a Roman, not a Jew, a man hardened to blood and death and gore, stood and watched, and when he saw how Jesus died, he concluded, surely this man was the Son of God. When you're pushed to your visceral limit, the real you comes out. John Stott wrote this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world, But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination instead, I've turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Look, says John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sin of the world. And what's the first thing the Lamb of God says, the first words recorded in that same gospel? What do you want? I believe he asks us that question tonight, individually and corporately. What is your answer to the Son of God probing you with that question? What is it that you really want? Do you have an answer? Is it a life partner, a baby, healing from disease, revival in your church, deliverance from temptation, freedom from the past? breakthrough in your calling. What do you want? Here the Son of God dares us to dream earth-shattering, nation-shaking dreams. Only possible because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Invite the person of Christ into your deepest longings. Let him in. Where there's brokenness, where there's disappointment, let him in. Where there's apathy, let him bring fire. Let that question challenge your heart. What do you want? The second question comes in the next chapter of John, and um, you may just want to flick over into John chapter 2. And uh, this is a fascinating passage. We haven't um, got time to do a long exposition of it. But this is an amazing miracle that Jesus does. And again, it's the first miracle that John chooses to record from the ministry of Jesus. We know the story. We're probably very familiar with it um, if you've been around church for any any, um, period of time. But the situation is desperate. Jesus and various other people are at a wedding. And the wine has run out just as the wedding is in full swing. And Jesus' mother comes to him. Now, this is really interesting for me as my um, boys are growing up and I'm beginning to enjoy interacting with them. So I read this in a different light uh, now. And she comes to him in verse 3. And Jesus' mother, it says, says goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Verse 4, here comes the question. Dear woman... Why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? A brilliant question. A question in this wedding. Jesus has nothing to do, probably, with the bride and groom, particularly. He's in Cana. We don't hear that he's a relative very closely of them. And his mother's saying, Here's this problem, this terrible problem. It's a terrible social faux pas. What's going to happen? Why do you involve me, Jesus asks. The famous Chinese pastor, um, Brother Yun, you may have read his book, he'd suffered unspeakable horrors at the hands of the communists, but also experienced amazing miracles, getting out of prison, seeing people resurrected from the dead. But when he came out of China, he describes in one of his books his amazement at the Western Church And what he couldn't get over was how proficiently in the West we pursue our church programs with absolutely no need for God. He says, you're so good, you're so clever, you're so excellent at what you do. And there's absolutely no need, no space for God to show up. Hear this question Why do you involve me is a profound question. Now, Jesus goes on to get involved and um, he he tells the, the men, the servants, to fill these enormous stone jars used usually for ceremonial washing with water. And he goes on to perform an amazing miracle. He turns literally liters and liters and liters of water into wine, the color of blood. Now, usually, um, well, often in churches, this is um, uh, used as a proof text for Jesus, the party animal. He wants us to have fun. He made lots of wine at a wedding, and uh, that's what this parable is about. But it's much deeper than that. This is a sign, a demonstration of who he is and what he's come to do. These huge vats of red liquid signify what Jesus has come to do to cleanse the world, to offer us forgiveness, to release us if we will involve him into a kingdom life of extraordinary things that would not be possible without him. So here I want to ask you the question, why would you involve Jesus in your Christian life? Are you willing to involve Jesus in your Christian life? Are you living a Christless Christianity? Are you living in such a way that were Jesus not involved, your life would collapse literally around your ears? Or can you actually continue on pretty well regardless Whether he's there or not. A few years ago, um, Frog and I were involved in a mission trip. Some of you will know the story, and um, we were students um, at Oxford, and we had we had sort of received this prophetic word that God was calling us to go to Afghanistan, and. This was in 1996, before September the 11th had happened, but the Taliban had taken about three-quarters of the country. And we sensed that the Lord was calling us and another guy, three of us, to go and to pray and to spend some time there and to see what doors he would open, the Lord would open. And so we uh, organised it. We got uh, got visas as journalists from our student newspaper um, the editor was our friend and he wrote a letter saying that we were the Afghanistan correspondents for the Charwell, which is not exactly a well-known newspaper. And um, we, got, we got these visas. Now, the night before we went, um, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw us giving Bibles to the Taliban. And so on the morning of our flight we um, went to this shop which was called Scripture Gift Mission and they have all the translations of the Bible that the Bible's been translated into and we went and filled our rucksacks with about 40 New Testaments and four full copies of the Bible and then we put sort of three t-shirts on top and off we went. Through a whole series of miracles the Lord took us into the military headquarters of the Taliban and we met The education minister, the foreign minister, and the religion minister, who was called the keeper of the Quran. We met lots of other people too. And we were able to interview them, and it was an extraordinary experience. And at the end, we got the Bibles out and we waited for the Kalashnikovs to be turned on us. And they received the Bibles, and the religion minister um, began to speak first through translation. And we honestly thought this was the end, we were going to be killed. And he took hold of the Bible and he said, I know exactly what this book is. I have been praying to God for years that I could read this book. I will read it every day until I finish it. Praise the Lord. It was amazing. We got out of that situation. It was quite hard to leave. They wanted to find brides for folk and miles. I'm not quite sure what they wanted to do with me, but that's another story. And um, we we managed to to get out. The war was going on at night. There was fighting all around. And we wanted to get home. And our friend um, had a proper job. You know, he'd only had two weeks' holiday. So we had to get back. And getting back involved crossing through a border from Afghanistan to Turkmenistan. And um, this border was... Um, quite hard to get through it was about a kilometer long with mines on either side and you went through the Afghani bit and said goodbye to the Taliban and then you walked through about a kilometer of sand and there was a sandstorm and we um, got to the Turkmen side and we had about three hours before our train and this train went twice a week and took 17 hours to get back to the airport so we thought being students three hours was enough you know that's fine we had about 20 dollars left and half a bottle of water and the Turkmen border guards wouldn't let us through um they wanted a bribe so Frog started going through Proverbs trying to find a place in the Bible where it would be okay to set to give a bribe he couldn't find it and I pointed out we only had 20 dollars anyway so it'd be much good (laughs) And um, he said, look, if, the, if, if um, I'm going to go and I'm going to say, I demand to speak to the British consul, it's my international right, and hold my passport up. And he said, if that doesn't work, you cry. So I thought, that would be easy. So he went to the border guard and said, "I did in his best English, you know, I demand to speak to the British consul. It's my international right." And they said, "That'll be fine, but the the, um, telephone only goes one kilometre, so good luck with that." So Frog looked at me. I cried. It didn't work. (laughs) We missed our train. We were completely stuck. Okay, here's the point of the story: the Lord had taken us into the heart of one of the most fundamentalist, darkest regimes on the face of the earth in answer to the prayer of a man who was responsible for the religion of that regime, who'd been praying, I want a Bible. And he'd taken us three random teenagers, effectively, we were 19, across the world into their military headquarters to give them Bibles. And now we were coming home. And we were rejoicing in this incredible victory. And now we were stuck in a sandstorm with half a bottle of water and $20. We were completely lost without a rescuer. I honestly thought we were going to die. It's the first time in my life as a very um, good vicar's daughter, you know, being a strong Christian all through. The first time in my life I have shouted at God, how could you do this? I think Frog was quite afraid at that moment. How could you leave us here to die in no man's land? Rescue came and um, we were delivered by someone who came through that border once every three months. Took us to get a visa. We came back the next day but we'd missed our train. We got through the border with even less money and by this point we were really hungry. We hadn't eaten for 36 hours. And we were seriously hungry and no hope of this train you know we're going to miss our flight this isn't a day before mobile phones we're old so up came a car completely randomly someone wound down the window of the car and said to us in perfect english can i help you we explained our situation. We'd found on the map that the nearest place to the airport we could get a bus was a about a 14-hour drive away from this place, and we said, we need to get to this place, but we don't have much money. It was a Russian couple. They took us to their home. They fed us. They gave us this black bread and boiled eggs. I hate boiled eggs, but I ate them that day. I was so hungry. They drove us in their car for 14 hours to the place we needed to go. And in that car, we began to sing to the Lord. And we sang this song, old-fashioned Christian song, Great is the Darkness that Covers the Earth. The chorus says, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit, we pray. And as we sang that, the glory of God filled the car in a way I have never experienced before or since. The air was yellow. The drivers now couldn't, this couple couldn't speak English anymore. They could only speak Russian. And all they said was, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We had a Russian um, gospel that we gave to them and they nodded weeping. Why do you involve me? Here's the question. Are you living your life in a way that it can roll on quite comfortably without Jesus turning up and delivering you and rescuing you? Are you living your life and pursuing the kingdom in a way that actually doesn't require much activity on the part of Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Jesus asks this profound question. It cuts to the heart, I believe, of our Western Christianity. What kind of a Christian life do you want to live? Do you want to live one that is happy and cozy and comfortable? Or do you want to live a life and pursue a dream of his kingdom, a dream that only he can give you? That would only be possible if he were to come through for you in a miraculous way. His presence, his power, his justice, his glory, his provision. Why do you involve me? If your dream and your vision is humanly attainable, I want to suggest to you tonight, it's too small. Involve Christ. Lay all on the altar for him. Pursue his presence, his justice, his work in his way, in a way that only he could accomplish. What do you want? Why do you involve me? Third question comes in John chapter 9 flick over if you have your Bibles. And um, by the way, there are 33 questions that I could have preached on tonight, (laughs) so you'll be happy I've only chosen four, all out of John. There are 157 questions Jesus asks in the Gospels, and every single one of them is utterly profound. So think about that when you're um, reading the Bible. So John chapter 9, the context is Jesus has healed a man who was born blind, okay, this is not a man who had an accident and, you know, whose eyes had a little bit of wear and tear and they're not so good anymore. This is a man who was born blind with eyes that have never seen. And Jesus Christ heals that man. This is a creation miracle. He brings sight to a man who has never seen. And this provokes all kinds of reaction. The religious people are quite um, up in arms about this. And when the man says what has happened and who's healed him, they throw him out of the synagogue. And he's very confused about this. And now we encounter him coming back to Jesus, having been healed and caused all of this controversy. Verse 35, chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, here's the question. Do you believe in the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? What do you believe? Is this question essentially. The story is told of a woman who was driving in London and um, she was speeding. And, I mean, unimaginable, but she was pulled over, speeding. And the officer said to her, to the lady, can I see your driver's licence? And she said, I don't have one. I had it suspended when I got my fourth conviction for driving uninsured. The police officer said, well, can I see the owner's documents for this vehicle? And she said, oh, no, it's not my car. I stole it. The car's stolen? The woman says, yeah, that's right, I th- Think though, I might have seen the document in the glove compartment when I put my gun in there there 's a gun in the glove compartment. The driver said yeah that 's where I put it. Um, the woman says after I, I shot the owner and, and, and I put him in the boot because he was being difficult there 's a person in the boot. Yes, the, driver, the woman says, and um, hearing this, the officer immediately calls for backup. The car is quickly surrounded by police. And the um, head of the SWAT team approaches the driver, able to handle the tense situation. She says, Madam, can I see your license? The woman gets her driving license out and hands it over. The police officer says, the SWAT team leader, sorry, says, whose car is it? She says, it's mine. It's, it's all in order. Here's the owner's paperwork. And sure enough, she could produce it. The man says, can you slowly open the glove compartment? I hear there's a gun in there the woman slowly opens it and says, no, 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 there's no gun, nothing here but a few sweets. The officer says, can you open the boot? I heard there was a body in there. She says, no problem, opens the boot, it's empty. The police officer says, I don't understand it. The man who arrested you said that you had told him you didn't have a license, you stole the car, you had a gun in the glove compartment and that you'd shot someone and he was in the boot. The woman says, really? Isn't that something? I bet that lying sucker told you I was speeding as well. (laughs) This, just lighten the mood a bit. This, uh, This question here from Jesus cuts to the heart of who we can believe and what we believe. Now, you know, in... In some circles, it's so fashionable to say it doesn't really matter what you believe. The content of your belief is not the most important thing. It's all about relationship. Now, of course, on one level, that's true. The Christian faith is primarily about relationship, us, with God. But relationship is only possible if we actually believe God is there and we believe the right things about who he is and his character. Otherwise, we have a relationship with an idol a fictitious God that we have made out of our own need for therapy or whatever. And Jesus Christ here cuts to the heart of what is such a powerful issue for us. What do you really believe about who he is? He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now when we read that, perhaps we think, you know, we've read C.S. Lewis and we think son of man is a bit like son of Adam and he's saying do you believe I'm human? It doesn't mean that at all. Flick back in your Bibles if you have them to Daniel chapter 7 and here we have in the Old Testament a description of this title son of man and this is what Jesus is asking. This man who's been born blind, who's experienced a creation miracle, his eyes can see, he's never seen And he's been miraculously healed by clearly someone who has tremendous authority. And Jesus is saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is what the Son of Man means. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you believe in Jesus as the Son of Man? The one who can approach the Ancient of Days, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. A description of of the eternal, everlasting God. The one who has authority, glory, sovereign power. He's the one who it is appropriate that all peoples of every language, tribe, culture, generation should worship. In other words, he's not a tribal God. He's not a deity for a particular geographical group of people. He's not a God who should be worshipped at a particular point in history but goes out of fashion. He's not a God who is in any way determined by culture. You're of this culture, I'm of that culture, you worship that God, I worship this God. No, all peoples of every language, nation, tribe should worship him. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His authority is eternal. This goes on, not just throughout the entire past, but into the entire future. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in Jesus in this kind of way? That he's God, that he has authority, that he's filled with glory, that power rests in him, that he will judge people, that he's the God of the universe, that it's entirely appropriate that he'd be worshipped by people of every culture, language, nation. Is the question Jesus asks. Do you believe it? Is Jesus Christ to you a best friend? Someone you believe in because your grandmother believed in him and your mother believed in him and you've kind of fallen into believing in him as a sort of family thing. Is Jesus Christ convenient? He can heal me. He can give me wholeness. And I like church, so you know it's it's basically comfortable for me to believe in him. It's nice. Or do you believe in the Son of Man? He's the one with all authority, glory, power. It's easy to forget who Jesus is, and to allow perceptions of Christ all around us to shape. Our behavior, a fear of being intolerant or a a fear of somehow being arrogant. But here Jesus asks this profound question. I had the privilege of speaking in Istanbul, in Turkey, um, a few years ago and then again this year. In that country, there are 70 million people, and there's only a handful of Bible believing Christians. The cost is high for Christians to follow him. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. But I met a girl just um, this last um, autumn who described to me how she came to believe in Jesus. She was um, in her, She's in her early 20s. And she had a friend who became a Christian and that friend gave her a New Testament and she began to read the Bible. But she she didn't believe it. She was from a different religion, a different culture. And then one day she was walking in the city and she looked up into the sky and she saw the sky ripped apart. And she said it was like a scroll. She's never read Revelation. Ripped open in front of her. And on a Up there in the sky, ripped open, was this glorious, bright, shining throne. And her eyes almost hurt as she looked at it. And seated on that throne was a man. And he held out his his right hand to her and called her and said, I want you to come to me. And she knew it was Jesus. And she put her hand into his hand. And as she did, he pulled her towards him. And as she was being pulled towards him, she saw the cross an image of the cross and she was pulled through the cross into the presence of Christ amazing vision it took another three visions for her to be persuaded to begin to follow Christ my friend who was introducing her said she is so spoiled she was telling me all these amazing visions because the cost for her is high. Believing in Christ as the Son of Man, the one who has all authority, glory, sovereign power, will shape her life, but it will also shape your life and mine. It's fascinating. Look at the man's response if you've got the text in front of you. I just love reading the Bible. It's so amazing how... Um, incredibly true to life, the response is. So the man said, "'Who is he, sir?' "'Tell me so I may believe in him.' And Jesus said, "'You have now seen him. "'In fact, he is the one speaking with you.' And then the man said, "'Lord, I believe,' and he worshipped him. Jesus accepted his worship. Do you believe in the Son of Man?' Do you believe that Jesus is the one who is to be worshipped by all? Who will judge the world. He's the only one who can save us. If we do, it will affect how we live. C.T. Stout, the brilliant um, Cambridge student who played cricket for England, inherited a massive fortune, became a Christian through the preaching of D.L. Moody and dedicated his life to church planting, both in China and in Africa, and gave his entire fortune to God's, work, to God's work, put it like this. He said, let us not glide through the world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet long and loud for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. You've got to love the Victorians. Describe your Christian life? Will the devil hold a Thanksgiving party in hell when he gets the news of your departure? Do you believe in the Son of Man? I suggest to you tonight that if you believe in Jesus as the Son of Man, it will shape how you live. It will shape your priorities. It will shape you in your workplace. It will shape how you are in missional communities and how this church grows and explodes across this Nation and other nations? Do you believe it? Do you believe in the Son of Man? How are we doing for time? Have I got time for the last question? Let's do it quickly. And then we're going to have some time for prayer ministry. And this is the last question I felt the Lord lay on my heart um, for you. And it comes in John's Gospel, chapter 12. And it comes in verse 27. It's quite appropriate, really, as we come up to... um, holy week and think about the cross and the resurrection. So um, the context is Jesus has um, predicted his death and he's talking really trying to disciple the disciples. Verse 27 he says this now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father save me from this hour? No it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father glorify your name. Here's the question. When my heart is troubled and when suffering comes, what do I say? Deliver me! No. Father, glorify your name. Wow. That's a profound question. And here's one of the things that I've noticed about um, the church situations that I've been to globally that are in revival, including China, including certain parts of the Muslim world and other places, one of the things I've noticed is that there is an ability to hold hand in hand the miraculous power of God to heal and intervene and raise the dead and rescue and deliver. The ability of God to open eyes, blind, get people out of locked prison doors, raise the dead, deliver people from hordes who want to kill them by sending angelic armies. There's a holding together of that faith and conviction that God is on the throne and he intervenes in space and time miraculously and the reality that Christians will and do suffer. And both of those are in the life of Jesus, and both of those realities are in the early church. As the growth of the church explodes, there's this tremendous power unleashed, but there's also a willingness on the part of the disciples and the apostles and those who go, a willingness to surrender and sacrifice and suffer even for him. And here we have Jesus asking us this question. When my heart is troubled, what will I say? Deliver me? No. Father, glorify your name. So the desperate cry of the heart of the follower of Jesus is that God would be glorified in every situation. My boss, Ravi Zacharias, was um, uh, invited to preach at the Islamic University in Jakarta in Indonesia uh, a few years ago now, I think three or four years ago. And this came about through an extraordinary series of events that he discovered when he arrived. He thought, this is an amazing invitation. He was indri- invited to address the entire student body as a Christian evangelist. When he got there, he asked, how is this possible? And it turned out that a year earlier, an Islamic apologist had come to the university and to speak to the students. And he had found out that there was one Christian member of staff. It was a huge auditorium. And he'd been talking about um, how weak and pathetic Christianity is and how only truly weak specimens of human beings could possibly believe in this religion. He said, I'm going to demonstrate it to you. And he called forward this member of staff. He said, I hear there's a Christian here and I want to call him onto the stage. Everybody looked at him. People knew he was a Christian. And he came up in front of his students. And he stood opposite the man on the stage, and the man said, to show you how weak and pathetic Christianity is, just watch this. And he looked at the man, and he whacked him around the cheek. He stood back, and he said, right, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, what's the response? Now, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that Jesus' teaching is, turn the other cheek. So the Christian lecturer turned the other cheek and was hit on the other side of the head. The next thing he did was to say, it's even worse than that. He said to the man, give me your clothes. Now remember in Asia, and in particular in in Indonesia, it's very much a shame and honor culture. And here was an elder being shamed. He said to his students, those of you who know me, you may want to close your eyes now. And he took off the clothes he was wearing and handed them to the man. And he walked off the stage absolutely desolate. He went back to his office, shut the door, locked the door, fell down on his knees and wept before the Lord. He said to the Lord, how could you let your name be dishonored in this place so publicly? Why did you not vindicate me? I've been working here for so many years, praying for your kingdom to come in this place, in my workplace. And it's all been for nothing. The Lord didn't seem to say much and he got up off the floor and thought, well, I've just got to continue working. So over the next week, um, that day and then into the next week, one by one and then in twos, threes, forties, fifties, hundreds, students came to his office and they said something along the lines of we're so sorry that what happened to you happened. Can you tell us a bit more about Jesus? Why do you follow this Jesus? What does it mean? He was able to share his faith in a way that he never could have and as a result of that, Rabbi Zacharias was invited to address the entire student body and many, many people came to Christ that day sometimes the way that God glorifies his name involves cost on our part and Jesus asks this profound question himself and it's a question about motive but it's a question we in the west the western church need to hear if we want God to use us in a powerful way when suffering comes what are you going to say are you going to say, I've had enough, I don't want this, I've, I'm in this because I thought it was a kind of come to me and your life will be really easy sort of message. Or will you be able to say, glorify your name, Father, glorify your name. I believe that if there are even 20 people in this church who will honestly pray that the very power of heaven can be unleashed through us. He can use us in the most wonderful way if we will surrender to him. So here are the questions. What do you want? Is your answer to that question worthy of the one who is asking you? Why do you involve me? Are you living a life that's possible to live without involving Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you really believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? That will shape how you live, and when suffering comes, what are you going to say?